a common refrain is that scientists are purely objective, which ignores the fact that scientists are people. And we can be trained to recognize our biases and the ways that they're creeping up into our research, but often that's not really something that's very much explored. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Have you ever wondered what scientists do with their science? Well, today's guest spends a good deal of her time defending science, among many other things. And stick around after the interview. Shreya Dravasala brings us another example of sidelining science. If you're a Got Science regular, you know that our mission is to highlight the stories of scientists working to make the world a better place. Often that's because of cutting-edge new technologies they're developing, or experiments they're conducting in the field, like the climate research taking place in Antarctica that we'll feature next month. But there's no one way to practice science. In our last episode, we spoke with Evelyn Valdez-Ward, a PhD student who's speaking out about her right to be a scientist studying and working in the U.S. without documentation. And today, where we meet Dr. Miriam Zaringalem, a very public scientist who's redefining who a scientist can be and what kinds of things they do. Over the past couple of years, thousands of scientists have become more involved in public debates and have started speaking up about laws that affect our health and safety, using their expertise and credibility to work for the public good. Our guest today is at the forefront of this movement, and she might be the most well-rounded person I've ever met. She's a molecular biologist. She's a science writer. She founded Art Lab, a blog and event series uniting art and science. She's a podcaster, having co-founded Science Soapbox. She's a producer for Story Collider. She's also a AAAS fellow in science and technology policy, and she's on the leadership team for 500 Women Scientists. All of these things and more are why UCS named her one of our 2018 Science Defenders, among four other individuals and groups who've taken a stand for science over the past year. I wanted to learn more about how Miriam is helping to broaden the scope of what scientists do, so I caught up with her recently in Washington, D.C., to talk about science and public policy and the range of options open to people with scientific expertise. Miriam, welcome to the Got Science podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. When did you very first become interested in science? So my mom is a medical doctor, and my dad is a physicist by training who is now in engineering, in computer engineering. And so I grew up with science all around me. We were a very uh, science-positive household. Um, and from a really early age, I always had uh, a lot of interest in how small parts come together to make a functional whole. So that meant when I was a kid that I was dissecting TV remotes and trying to reverse engineer them to work again. I was not a very good engineer, so that meant that we went through a lot of television remotes as a kid. I'm imagining you were popular with your family. <laughs> it's a troublemaker. Um, and that translated into biology when in ninth grade we dissected a fetal pig. And I had this moment where I was looking inside of the pig and realizing, oh my gosh, like I have 
these intestines in my body too. And I have a stomach in my body and I have a brain in my body. And if I wasn't dissecting this pig right now, all of these parts would be coming together to make an oinking, rolling around in the mud pig. And that got me hooked on biology right then and there in the ninth grade. And as I uh, continued to learn about biology, continued to learn about science, that translated into a love of genetics because ultimately the most basic functional unit of complex biological beings like ourselves is DNA. And so I wanted to know how from just four basic letters, A, C, T, and G, you could have all of the complexity of life that we see around us. And so that was really from TV remotes to genes, how I got interested in, in the biology that I do. So tell me a little bit about your journey from molecular biologist in the lab to science advocacy and science policy. When did that shift happen? I eventually went on to get my PhD and Within the first, maybe second year of grad school, I started to notice that what I was doing in the lab felt very isolated from the conversations I was having just with my friends um, at parties and things like that. And there seemed to be this gap where I was trying to talk about my research to my friends and they were saying, oh, no, no, I'm an arts kid. I was in the dumb class. I dumb with air quotes around it. And science isn't for me. I can't understand it. I would have all of these engaging, interesting conversations with them once I kind of lured them into being a little bit less afraid of the work that I was doing and asking questions of the work that I was doing. And so I got interested in communication right then in, in my second year of grad school, and I started a project called Art Lab, where I was trying to use the language of art, use art as a lens to think about science, because fundamentally, science and art are both creativity-driven endeavors. We encounter a lot of failure as we're experimenting around, whether it's paints or molecules. And there's also, well, we don't make much money either. So <laughs> funding could be better for both. Um, and doing Art Lab, I got to meet people who were, who were working at the intersection of art, science, and environmental justice and then broadly science justice as I, as I continued down that track. And I found that there were all of these different ways that people were connecting their expertise in science with, uh, with, with the public at large, trying to engage them in more public conversations around the place of science in society. And I started to kind of wonder, well, you know, is there, is there a place for me and the skills that I have in communication um, my, my passion for justice with my expertise as a scientist. And so I, with a couple of friends, started a podcast uh, called Science Soapbox at the intersection of science policy and advocacy, where we really just wanted to talk with scientists who were using their expertise in some sort of public-facing way. Because honestly, we had no idea what that would look like. We had no idea what a career um, in science policy or advocacy or communication might look like, but we did know that we could identify the right experts and talk to them, kind of like an experiment. And uh, so we got to have a lot of really amazing people on the podcast, like John Holdren, who was the uh, former advisor, science advisor to President Obama. 
We've had Catherine Hayhoe on the podcast um, talking about uh, her expertise in climate science and how she's used her unique lens as an evangelical Christian to advocate for climate solutions within that community. Um, we've talked to Frances Cologne, who was the highest ranking Hispanic woman scientist at the State Department, about how she was able to connect her expertise in science with um, big global diplomacy questions around climate change and empowering young girls into STEM careers. And so all of their paths looked really different, but they were fundamentally giving back to society. Um, through their expertise. And so I thought, man, maybe this is something I can do. And, and I decided to leave the bench um, and pursue a science policy fellowship through the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, which is... So, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so, um, so this is a program that places PhD scientists who are either early career, mid-career, late career, it doesn't matter, um, in the government for a year to two years to see how they can use their expertise uh, within, the, uh, within a government setting, um, trying to find where their expertise fits into policymaking, um, and also figure out you know, how this big bureaucratic, unwieldy, seemingly uh, thing like government actually works. And so I wanted to, um, to get a feel for how I could use my experiences in grad school, um, my commitment to wanting to democratize access to the products of research, so make sure that they're communicated to the public and they're also communicated to researchers so that we're really making sure that science has a place within the public discourse. So what do you see as the danger of science not being part of the public discussion? I see a lot of decisions that are being made based on emotions and emotions alone, which I am a very emotional person. Um, and I find that for me to take a step back, to identify my emotions as fear or, um, or excitement or what have you, take a step back and think, well, what, what does the evidence say? And what are the consequences if I don't act in in accordance with the evidence. Because there are some times when, you know, I take strange vitamins because I see them advertise that they'll make my hair shinier, and I want that. And I look at the evidence, and it doesn't really back it up, but there's also no health risks. So I think, well, why not? Just doing your own experiment. Yeah, just doing my own experiment. And if it makes me feel better, then that's fine. But then, of course, there are other cases like climate change which it's here, it's happening, and we've caused it. And if we don't act now, uh, then we are really risking the, the health and livelihood of our planet, of our fellow people, um, by, by neglecting the evidence. So I think that's really the risk of, of, not, of not communicating about where science falls in, in the public discourse. Because you know, sometimes it's benign to ignore the evidence, and other times it's completely catastrophic. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot to inequity and, and bias. I mean, many people think, hey, the science is the science. Mm -hmm. There can't be inequities or biases. Can you give some examples to our listeners so they know what we're talking about? Yeah, so I think it is really a common refrain is that scientists are purely objective, which ignores the fact that scientists are people. 
And we can be trained to recognize our biases and the ways that they're creeping up into our research. But often that's not really something that's very much explored uh, in scientific training, is identifying the biases that come up as a product of, of how we're raised, how we're socialized, how we interact with one another. And so I think that the way that this really crops up in the case of um, women, minorities, disabled people, LGBTQ people, is that people people's assumptions of, you know, I'll take me as an example. I'm a woman, in case you can't tell by my voice. <laughs> um, and I've had people tell me that some of my bold ideas are overambitious. Whereas if that idea came out of the mouth of a male colleague of mine, that would be seen as visionary or bold. Innovative. Or, yeah, innovative, cutting edge. Um, and the way that that creeps up when I'm you know, writing a scientific paper or applying for grant money is that they'll look at that overambitiousness and say that it's unrealistic and not worth funding. And so that starts to hurt the careers of women, starts to hurt the careers of people who don't conform to the stereotypes that we've been socialized to accept as, as what a scientist looks like, which is typically white, cisgendered, male, and so unless we're having these kinds of conversations about the ways that bias affect who gets to do science, then we're really not going to be able to course correct. Despite how man however many you know fun diversity initiatives we throw out there, despite however many kind of kinds of like kumbaya moments that we try to have, unless we're really interrogating the biases that we hold, even I as a woman hold certain biases that are implicit against women just because of how I've been socialized within this greater societal context. Um, and I think that also, if we're keeping certain people away from the bench, if we're keeping certain people out of these conversations, not giving them a seat at the table, then we're really, especially when you start to get into research that is more fraught, like when you're starting to look into, say, um, gender difference uh, or sex difference research. If you only have men at the table making conclusions about the aptitude of women or what women are most qualified to do or the nurturing qualities of women, if there are no women who are at the table to say, hey, maybe you should check in with your biases and decide, is this what the science says or is this what you, a human scientist with your subjective flaws, is bringing to the table? We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. So please drop me a tweet. Now let's get back to our interview. So what would your dream job be? Oh, man. Um, so I think right now I, I have sort of three hats, which is as a science communicator, um, as in the work that I do um, as a science writer, as a science storyteller, um, the second hat is as a, is a 
as an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion with the work that I do with an organization called 500 Women Scientists. And the third hat is as in my science policy fellowship. And to me, in my science policy fellowship, where I'm trying to um, increase access to federally funded research by the public and the research community. I, I struggled with this having kind of an identity crisis for a while, but I think all of these really come back to the idea of making sure that everybody has access to the process and products of research. And understand that science belongs to everybody. And there's all of these different ways in order to try to accomplish that. And so my really long cop-out answer is my dream job is just making sure that I'm getting to work at this interface between science and the scientific community and the greater public and making them feel like they have agency to participate in these kinds of conversations and um, ask questions of scientists because scientists, after all, are, are in the business of asking questions themselves. It is true. You're wearing many hats. I, <laughs> I, you're doing a podcast. You're working on Story Collider. You're writing articles. You're, you're doing a lot. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about 500 Women Scientists, this organization. Tell me how how it came about and what you're doing with the organization. Yeah, so 500 Women Scientists was started as an open letter after the November 2016 election. And it began as a pledge to stand up not just for science and the place of science in the public, but also to stand up for the human rights and dignity and right to justice of the people who are doing science and the people who should be benefiting from science, particularly those who would be increasingly marginalized under the current administration. So immigrants, people of color, women, gender minorities, uh, people from the LGBTQ community, and, and so on. And this pledge went viral within the first week or so and has since garnered around 20,000 signatures from all around the world. And women scientists around the world started self-organizing in response to the Women's March, really, um, and marching together within their own satellite cities. And from there, a bunch of women decided, well, maybe we should actually try to develop this into an organization. So this is truly a movement that was born of the grassroots. And then uh, the organization came from trying to organize all of the energy that we that we saw all around the world. And so as of this summer, we've become a 501c3 with the mission to serve society by making science open, inclusive, and accessible. I wasn't one of the original 500 women. I think I looked it up and I was something like 1,000, something like that. <laughs> um, but I, I, heard of the, I heard of the pledge just online, the way that other people were finding it. And um, in January, I found myself in Iran uh, visiting family when the first travel ban happened. And I felt completely hopeless in that moment, trying to figure out, I'm a US citizen, but there was a lot of weird communication happening at that time, and I wasn't sure that I would be able to come back without any issues. So when I was in the Abu Dhabi airport on my way back, trying to figure out, well, like, how can I take back some power for myself? How can I be part of the solution? Because I was seeing these lawyers protesting at airports, trying to make sure that their expertise was available to the people who needed it. 
And I was wondering, well, how can I do that as a scientist? And so I emailed Kelly Ramirez and Jane Zelikova, who were the two co-founders, and asked them, hey, I have these communication skills. Uh, I think I could maybe try to write grants or op-eds or whatever. It doesn't matter. Can I, can I join and, and help shape this? And that was how I got involved and how, um, how it started for me. And I haven't looked back. <laughs> so what, what would you say to scientists that really feel that there's no place for a scientist to be advocating for policy, et cetera? I'd say that science is inherently political. There is no way that you can imagine science existing in a vacuum because the raw materials that we use for science are the world around us. And so how could we possibly isolate ourselves from everything that we witness around us, whether it's inconvenient or works to our advantage? And so I think that if we're not engaged in these kinds of conversations, if we're not trying to advocate for the position of evidence in in the world around us, and if we're not trying to advocate for the responsible use of evidence, making sure that it is benefiting and serving the greater public, then I really don't understand what the point of what we're doing is. Because whether you're doing science just for the sake of generating knowledge, well, you should be sharing that knowledge with as many people as possible. Well, I think that this conversation we're having here, I think, is really inspiring for young upcoming early career scientists. I'm glad. Such as yourself. (laughs) Is there anything that you would directly want to say to a scientist in college that's just, you know, maybe thinking, oh, the political situation working in, you know, as a federal scientist would be horrible. Is there anything you would want to say to them to encourage them to participate? Oh, I think so many things. Um, The first is that Something I've realized as I've started uh, getting into more organizing is that optimism is sort of a muscle that you have to that you have to strengthen and exercise. And so it's really difficult to just like look or look at the world around you and immediately feel hope. You have to kind of search out examples. And and that's something that I'm constantly doing is looking at examples of where organizing paid off or where government scientists were able to make their voices heard and make a difference or Supreme Court cases in which First Amendment rights were upheld. And looking at the greater scope of, of history beyond just these one or two years that we're experiencing. Because something I've learned during my policy fellowship is that bureaucracies are, are big and multi-layered. And that's exactly why things are really hard uh, to change quickly. But it's also why there is a lot of stability. Um, in in the work that is being done uh, in the government, in the work that is being done within um, advocacy organizations like Union of Concerned Scientists, <laughs> um, and so I think that while you know these these last years have been tough, um, don't don't lose hope um, because by the time that you have your degree and you're ready to enter the workforce, there's there's loads of people that I have met. Um, at UCS, that I've met through 500 Women Scientists, that I've met through Story Collider, who are really working to make sure that science is working for everybody. Thanks, Miriam, for coming by. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you. UCS has been such a great part of my journey, so I'm, I'm happy to get to chat with you. And now it's time for Sidelining Science with Shreya Dervasula. 
If it isn't broken, let's fix it, seems to be the motto among this administration's agencies. For example, vehicle fuel standards. They're great for consumers, and car manufacturers are happy with them. It doesn't matter, change them anyway. The Endangered Species Act is protecting wildlife? Let's make it worse. The Clean Water Act is keeping our drinking water safe? Time to screw it up. Most recently, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, has decided to solve a non-problem with federally subsidized school lunches and breakfast programs. In 2010, the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, among other things, set standards for kids in school cafeterias across the country to eat more whole grains, drink less sugary flavored milk, and reduce their sodium intake. Eight years later, now that the program is working just fine, the USDA has announced that they're lowering these standards. So what will this mean for the 30 million children who eat breakfast and federally subsidized lunches at nearly 99,000 schools and institutions every year? More junk food, basically. For example, under the 2010 rule, schools had to provide, quote, whole grain-rich foods, end quote. So all grain products, like hamburger buns, plates of pasta, or tortillas, had to be whole grain-rich. Now these standards have been relaxed so that schools only need to make sure that half of these products are whole grain-rich. Well, what's the fuss about whole grains, you might be wondering? Think about bread. The alternative to a slice of bread made with whole grains is a slice of bread made with refined grains. Refining the grain removes about a quarter of its protein, three quarters of its fiber, and a lot of the nutrients that are the whole reason for eating food in the first place. Now, a slice of white bread every now and then isn't going to hurt kids. But nutritionally, refined grains just aren't as good for kids, or anyone, as whole grains are. And since we're talking about 30 million children who eat millions of breakfasts and lunches every year, these slices of refined grain white bread add up. Since there was already a rule in place mandating the healthier, more nutritionally sound whole grains, why mess with it? Other changes will allow schools to serve sugary-flavored, low-fat milk in addition to flavored non-fat milk and to give them more time to comply with rules to lower sodium in the lunches they serve. My awesome colleague Karen Perry Stellerman, a senior analyst in our food program, told the New York Times that, quote, It was unclear why the administration would backtrack when schools were in good standing with the nutritional goals, end quote. In fact, a news release from the USDA said that in 2016, more than 99% of schools in the country reported that they were meeting the old standards. The official line from the USDA is that this rollback is part of the agency's efforts to conform to President Trump's order to eliminate, quote, unnecessary regulatory burdens, end quote. Feeding kids food that's not hot garbage doesn't strike me as an unnecessary burden. Rolling back perfectly functioning standards that are good for kids and based on evidence is just sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Got Science is made possible by the generosity of our 130,000 members. I want to give an extra shout-out to our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. 
Learn more at ucsusa.org slash partners. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Miriam Zaringalam. Sidelining Science was brought to you by Shreya Dravasula. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. And remember, you can connect with me on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.